Um, as I said a few minutes ago, we've been working through uh, a series on worship in our preaching, and we're on week four of eight this morning. We're going to be looking at John chapter four, so you can open your Bibles, you can turn there, the words will be on the screen as always, or in your, in your seasons weekly. And this is really one of the most, to me, incredible stories of uh, Jesus' ministry. And the background is, Jesus is traveling, he, goes, he gets into this town called Samaria, it's the middle of the day, hot, humid, he stops by a well to rest, his disciples go into town to buy food, and um, a Samaritan woman comes up and, uh, to get some water, and Jesus greets her and asks her for a drink. And so what I'm going to do is read the first, I'm going to read verse 9 to 15 in John 4 as an intro, and then we're going to walk through verses 16 to 30. Hear the word of God, John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, uh, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it himself as did his sons and all his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Sins a reading of God's holy and errant word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray now that the meditations of my heart and the, worships, the worship of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. We call on you as our hope, our strength, our shield our rock of refuge. We pray that you would come and uh, attend supernaturally and mysteriously the reading and the preaching of your word. Pray these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the obvious thing about this passage when we get into it, you're going to see, is that it's about worship. The word's used nine times in five little verses right together. But here's what's striking about this passage. There's a lot of things, but here's what's striking. When Jesus, cho- to, to give his mo- one of his most significant times of teaching on worship, here's what he chooses. It's not, not at a temple, not at a church, not at a religious site or a holy ground, uh, not, not with uh, angelic hosts, not with saints, not with these perfect people. He chooses the middle of nowhere in a desert with, a, with an immoral, impure Samaritan uh, woman. And I think part of that, part of the reason why is because we think, we expect, we, we like worship to be so clean, so neat, so tidy, so comfortable. And Jesus is saying, not at all. Worship is coming right into the knit and the grit and the everyday of your life. And it's actually maybe one of the most dangerous things that you can do. And so what he's going to do is show us really three things that if we have real worship, it, it it will expose our deepest pain. It'll reveal our, deep, uh, our deepest need. And it'll change our, our deepest sin. And, and the first thing Jesus shows us here is that it's going to expose our deepest pain. Real worship will. Um, look at what Jesus does. Now, 
if Jesus is looking for a worshiper, I'm going to say he gets off to a bad start. He starts talking about this whole analogy of living water. I just read, you know, the woman totally doesn't get it. Analogy totally doesn't land. So Jesus decides, now it's time to change tax. Now it's time to get uh, personal and, and point out the pain in her life. And he says there's really two kinds of pain. There's, there's sinful pain. Uh, in other words, the pain that comes in our lives from the choices we make, the sins we commit, the false worship that we have. And then there's just a broken pain in life. There's a pain that just comes because other people sin against us or the world is fallen, the world is, 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 is broken. And, and he addresses this very quickly on her. And, and it's, kind of, it's kind of odd because look at the drastic change. He's talking about water in verse 15. And then verse 16, just out of nowhere, he says, go and call your husband and come here. Now, Jesus already knows something about this woman. He knows that she actually doesn't have a husband, that she's living uh, uh, immorally right now. And uh, he knows that, but she doesn't know that he knows. And so how, she's like, how do I answer this question? You know, because I want to tell the truth. I'm talking to a rabbi, so I better tell the truth. But uh, I don't want to reveal, I don't want to expose too much of, of myself. So she says in verse 17, what? I have no husband. Now, that's the truth, Right? But it's an evasive truth, isn't it? I mean, it's like, you know, when you say to your, your, your kids, you know, son, now son, you, you weren't playing around the road out there, were you? No, dad, I wasn't playing around the road. He can say that truthfully because he was playing right in the center of the road. He wasn't around it, he was right in the middle of the road. Uh, it, it's an evasive uh, truth, but Jesus knows what the full deal is uh, on this woman. And this is what he says in verse 18, uh, fairly harsh. He says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. He says, here's the deal. I know everything about you. You've been married and divorced five times, and now you're living with a man that's not your husband. And he just lays it out there. And I read that, I'm like, is this Jesus? Is this this compassionate Jesus here doing that and putting his finger right in the wound of her deepest pain and just kind of twisting the knife? Part of what he's saying is, let's just be honest and say, part of the messiness of your life, part of the reason your life is jacked up the way it is, is because of your own false worship, because of your own sin. He's pointing that out to her very clearly. It's not all your parents' fault, not all your culture's fault. Some of this is your fault, and you've pretended and hidden and concealed it, and now I'm going to expose it. And you can really see how much this hurts her, I think, because... You know, what, what, would you, what do you do if somebody presses on something that personal in your life? You know, I mean, you know, if you, she can't fight him, so she's not going to fight him. Um, she, she tries to change the subject, right? The first, she's like, I can't handle that, so I'm going to change the subject. Jesus is getting too close. So she throws out a theological abstraction in verse 19 and 20, this whole debate, uh, religious debate between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, she said, the woman said to him, uh, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You know, Samaritans believed the Bible teaches worship on Mount Gerizim over here where I am, and, and the Jews believe, no, worship on, on, uh, on uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so she's throwing that out to redirect attention uh, away from her. And, and I think that just exposes how much not only sinful pain is in her life, but broken pain. The fact that the world has almost destroyed this woman. I mean, let's think more about her. First, she's a woman. In, in, ancient day, uh, in the ancient days, uh, if she could be a second-class citizen, that would be an upgrade. More likely, she is uh, considered a property, considered uh, a sexual object, com- considered uh, a servant. And, and second of all, she's a Samaritan. 
And in that day, Samaritans were considered like a half-breed. They were, they were considered a race that was, I don't know, impure. And so she's experienced racism uh, all of her life. She's been under that, under that um, deal. And, and third, she's shamefully immoral, uh, even really in our day, but unconscionably so for, for her day. For a woman to have had five husbands in her day was, I mean, almost impossible, almost not even not even uh, thinkable. And think of the brokenness of that pain because she is a woman who has had five times a man say to her, I love you and I want to marry you. And then he married her and then he slept with her and then he said, I'll have nothing more to do with you. And he walked away five times. She's a broken woman. And let's look at what she's doing. She's traveling alone. She's alone at the well. Now, in the ancient day, you didn't travel by yourself because that was how people got, you know, robbed and, and, uh, and killed and beat up. I mean, a la like the other Good Samaritan story in Luke 10. That's, that's how that happened, traveling alone. You didn't travel alone. And, and, and look at what time she's at the well. She's there at noon. Now, what kind of, you know, who, who goes in the middle of the desert heat, who, who wants to carry a, a 50-pound water jar uh, through the desert at noon, that's the last time, that's the last time you do it. You, you go to the, the well early in the morning, late in the evening when, when it's cool. So here's the question. Why is she willing to risk the danger of bandits and the force of desert heat in order to come get this water? It's because she has been so brutalized, so ostracized, so looked down upon she can hardly bear to look anyone in the eye anymore. She can hardly bear it. She can't stand the self-righteous glances that she gets. And so she comes by herself in the middle of the heat. And so here's the next question. If she's in that kind of pain, why does Jesus treat her the way he does? I mean, this is what I, I had to read this like 18 times. Like, is, are you sure Jesus said this? Like he just was like, you know, dagger right in the heart here. He just exposes her kind of like a hammer. And at this point, you know, you might be just saying, maybe Jesus is like the cruelest person in the world. I thought he was merciful. I thought he was kind. But he seems to be so cruel right here. He just seems to be so, so mean to her. And he, he's throwing it in her face. He's rubbing salt in the wound. That's what it looks like. And I know a lot of you will think, well, that's just what religious people do. Always judgment. Always condemnation. And a lot of you here, here have experienced the reality of that. And, and there are a lot of people that aren't here this morning for the simple reason that they've experienced that from Christians in the world. But before we condemn Jesus, let's look a little bit closer. Because think about it. This woman has been running and hiding from people all her life. She, she won't even come out with other people to a well to get a jar of water. But yet, she doesn't run away from Jesus. Jesus just throws that sin right out there and she doesn't even run away. Why not? Here's why I think. Because all she'd ever gotten from anybody else in her whole life was mocking, derision, condemnation, sideways glances, and gossip. And now here comes Jesus. And you have to understand all the rules of the day because a, a man was not even allowed to talk to a woman in public then. A, a Jew would never talk to a Samaritan. And, and, a, and a holy rabbi would be, wouldn't be caught dead talking to an impure, immoral woman like her. And so here's this woman, mocked by everybody all her life, and then she sees Jesus 
come to her, and what? He approaches her. He looks her in the eye. He speaks to her. He humanizes her. And so she doesn't run. She stays to see what he has to say. To everybody else, she had been property. She'd been servant. She'd been a a, a sexual object, fodder for gossip. But in the eyes of Jesus, she was a loved human being. And and so at that moment, she was able to not fear being exposed because she knew she had nothing to fear from the exposer. Simply because of his humanity with her. Now, I I don't care who you are, if you're Christian, non-Christian. I think every person in this world would kill to have someone be able to look in the deepest part of who you are and know and name everything there and still look at you like that with love, compassion. And that's what Jesus does for her. But he has to heal her by first exposing her. And we would keep Jesus at a distance. I think we've even, we've even built our own lives. Around. We, build, we, build, we even do it in worship. I mean, think about her. She throws out a theological point. She uses theology to distance herself from Jesus. How sick is that, right? I mean, we, we, whatever we do, we don't want Jesus getting in close and seeing any, any of that. Uh, I, w- I went to the zoo some time ago with my kids, and, and I was thinking, you know, I was, went to the lion cage, and I was kind of looking, looking out, and it's not a cage, it's really a, you know, an area, whatever, but you look at the lion, he's kind of over there, you know, and he's kind of laying down, and his tail switching around, and you're like, you know, he's cute. No, he's a, he's a, he's a nice lion. He's so cuddly. It's because he's at a distance. He can't, he, he, has, he can't do anything. He can't really relate to you. He can't really do anything, but throw you in the cage... That's a whole different story. Suddenly it becomes dangerous. And in a way, I know it's a bad analogy, but in a way, Jesus is kind of like that. It's kind of like a lion. We want to keep him at a distance, domesticated, soft, quiet, gentle, don't really get inside, don't really do anything. And so we push away and we conceal and we hide and we pretend that I'm okay and you're okay. Instead of letting God get close The Samaritan woman had been hiding all of her life. But she finds out when you actually get next to Jesus, it gets a little dangerous. You can't really hide anymore. There's nothing uh, nothing you uh, can do to hide. And I think sometimes we even come to worship and we say things like, hey, let's come in and worship and and leave everything else out there. Leave all your pain out there. Leave all the distractions out there and and your grumblings and your grudges. Leave all that out there because we're here to worship. As if like the Bulldog Cafeteria can become like a reality-free zone where your life isn't really occurring in here. But what Jesus is saying is, no, that's what I want you to bring me. I mean, if we can't bring in, if we can't bring to God our, our deepest, the deepest part of who we are, if we can't bring to God our, our grudges and our fears and our doubts and our pain and our suffering and our sin and give it to him as an act of worship, then what relevancy does our faith really have? What relevancy does it have? If it's not, if it's not in the nitty-gritty of my life, but Jesus says worship is always personal. Real worship is always personal. It's not abstract. It's not out there. It's coming in here. Jesus says it's always personal, always deals with real life. Because worship is not about just coming here, learn a few things about God, or get a, 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 an inspirational uh, dose for the week. It is about opening yourself to him. And, and that's honestly dangerous, and it's scary. That, that's why somebody can go to church for 20 years, and you say, 
virtually never changed. He's been to church 20 years, but he never changed, never become a different person. It's because he conceals and hides and refuses to let Christ come close. And the question is, is what do you need to stop pretending about this, this morning? What do you need to stop blaming other people for? What do you need to stop hiding and concealing? Where does the gospel need to shine the light into your heart? Because Jesus can, he could deal with our, with our junk. It's not too hard for him. So we can come to worship and pretend or we can come and confess. And what the Samaritan woman really teaches us is that worship is, it's not just that, hey, sin and brokenness don't disqualify you from worship. It's actually even more than that. It's actually that sin and brokenness are really the only thing that can qualify you for worship. That's what she's showing us. It's the only way you can come to God without hypocrisy. But how does it actually happen? Well, it happens as Jesus not only exposes the deepest pain, but as he reveals uh, our deepest need. Remember the question she asked him? Hey, what mountain should we worship on? What's the answer to the theological question? This mountain, that mountain, where should we worship? And Jesus is going to actually answer her question, but he's going to do it in such a way that's going to reveal her need and reveal uh, our needs. And and the first thing he said she actually needs is uh, the truth. Look at his response in verse 21 to 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's kind of cryptic, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to really understand exactly what he's saying there, but here's the bottom line. He's saying to the woman, bottom line is you're asking the wrong question. You're saying, where can I worship God? Where? This here, over there, where is God so I can worship Him? As if God could be defined by a where. It's the completely wrong question. Where is not the right question? As if we have some localized tribal deity, God sitting in his temple, wringing his hands, going, I wish that somebody would come by and worship me for a few minutes. That's what I really, really need. Jesus says, where is the completely wrong question? He tells her, you worship what you do not know. In other words, you're worshiping this scrawny version of God that's limited to your little particular area in the world and your, little, and your own you know, ethnic national identity. And God cannot be contained by walls and by rituals and by, uh, uh, he doesn't belong to any one ethnicity, he doesn't belong to any one race. And so you're asking the wrong question. And I think this actually explodes the whole definition of worship, you know, because it's saying the definition of worship, the word in Greek there, proskuneo, same word as our word, in, uh, origin of our word in English of worship, doesn't mean come to church on a Sunday morning and sing a few songs. The, the word worship means worth Ship, worthship. In other words, to give worth to, to give value to something that is worth something, something that is valuable. Worship simply means to treasure something, to value it, to give your life and your allegiance to it. And ultimate worship is to worship one thing or to treasure one thing or, or hold this precious one thing above all other things. And everybody does that, whether you're religious or not. And so I, I said this last week, I'll say it again. The question is not where you worship or when you worship or if you will worship. The question is who you're going to worship or what you're going to worship. That's always the question. I'll try to give you a practical example of this. Um, 
of just kind of what this looks like. Just as an example, let's say that you're a single guy, and uh, you know your friend decides he wants to set you up with a with a um, girl he knows, and, and he kind of points her out to you across the room, you know, and you look at her and you're like, yeah, she's kind of cute. I think I would like to you know get to know her. And then he he takes you up, introduces her, and you're like, man, you just you start to kind of get enamored. You know, she's she's beautiful. I just like the you know face and her hair, the way she walks. And then then you start talking to her, you know, and, and wow, this is she is so cool. You know, like you you start you start. Uh, you start seeing her, and you're like, man, she, she is so deep, so interesting, so fun. And then, and then you start to, to, to get to know her better, and you start to um, build your, you know, build your uh, uh, life around her. You start to change your behavior toward her. You start to give her uh, a, a gifts, and you start to protect her. You start to make time to take her out. You, you start to spend less time with your, with your guys and, and, and more time with her, right? And then you start to think about, the implications this relationship has for your life, and you know, maybe, maybe we get married. Maybe we, uh, maybe we will get married. You know, then you are married, and, and then you're thinking about the, you know, the, the, all the implications that this relationship uh, has, and you're starting to fill your mind with her, and you see what that is, right? Because you filled your mind with her, and you've given yourself to her, and you've pledged your allegiance to her, and you, and, and, and you've grown your your whole commitment to her. You see what that is, right? And, and her, her friends, the women, will say it, um, and usually with like a, a swoon or like an ah, like she, he worships the ground she walks on, right? He worships the ground she walks on. It, it's, it's worship. The guys, of course, were much more crass, and what the guys will say, oh, he's whipped. You know, he's wrapped around her little finger. She's, he's always got to be uh, with her. But the truth is, is that what he's done He's beginning to give her greater value and worth, worthship, than he's given, uh, and then he's given himself in proportion to her worth. As her worth grows in his heart and mind, so does his level of worship. You know, there's nothing like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, uh, but of being a, a guy in a group, you know, like five guys are friends, and, and one guy falls in love, and the other four guys, you know, can't even get a date. And the, the endless smack talk that comes from those four guys to the, the one, you know, who's out on Friday night with his girlfriend versus playing video games with them or something, the endless smack talk is just incredible. It just goes on, oh, you're out with her again. Yeah, we know, we know. And uh, it, 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 it goes on and on. Of course, you know, he is having to give up time with, with his friends. You know, like he, he used to complain about uh, spending 250 at Taco Bell, and now he's, you know, gladly dropping down $100 to, to take her out to dinner. It's a whole different, you know, ball game. And the reason is, I mean, why is that? Why is he now willing to give up time with his other friends? Why is he now willing to arrange his schedule for her? Why is he now willing to spend $100 on dinner, whereas $250 felt painful before? Because she is so worth it. Her worth has gotten so huge that, that it requires all of him in order to love her well. You see, he's able to endure the scorn of his, of his friends and everything else in order to have her. And that's what worship actually is. Can you imagine what Christian worship could do? Can you imagine if you valued what is ultimately valuable in the universe? God. You see the hope? You see the endurance that uh, that would bring? you imagine how powerful it would be? Uh, you remember the, remember the story from Acts chapter 7 with Stephen? Um, Stephen gets arrested for preaching the gospel, and, and they, they, they're ready to stone him. They're ready to kill him with rocks. And what does the Bible say? And Stephen looked up, and behold, he saw Jesus standing in glory. And Stephen worshipped. 
Because Jesus had become to him of greater worth, of greater value than even his own life. And so he could die a painful, terrible martyr's death, not in agony, but really with contentment. That's the power of worship. And the Samaritan woman needs that truth in her life because her life is nearly ruined and she has nothing but shame. And that's why Jesus tells her the truth. And verse 23 says, the Father is seeking worshipers, worshipers like you. Why? Because God is arrogant and petty and he always needs people saying, I love you. And he always needs people praising him. No, not because he needs it, but because she needs it. She needs the power of worship. Not because he needs it, but because I need it and because you need it. That's why he's seeking worshipers. Uh, my son, my five-year-old Jude, uh, he has a little stuffed animal. I think almost all kids do, right? But he has a little stuffed animal. He's a little monkey. And the monkey's name is Mo. And uh, Mo is, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the most valuable thing, the most precious thing uh, in Jude's life. And, uh, you know, I, I dread the day that, like, the leg falls off or whatever because I think, like, reality will fold inside out and everything will just disappear. I don't know what will happen, but it's not going to be pretty in my house. But, but Mo is his most valuable possession. And honestly, I, I truly believe that you could take Jude outside and, and you could pull up a, uh, uh, a brand new BMW right to, the, right to the front door there, 2012, 7 Series. Pull it up right to the front door. That's right, not a 5 Series. <laughs> the first service got, got, caught that too. Uh, you could pull that BMW right up to the front door and then you could put it there and then put Mo here and say, okay, Jude... You can only choose one. You can only have one. Which one will it be? Which one's he going to pick? Mo. That's right. He would run right to Mo, not even think about it. Why? Well, he's a kid. He's not mature enough yet to understand the worth and the value of a new BMW. That's not even funny. But in the same way, ask the question. Am I mature enough? Are you mature enough to understand the value of God? Or are we clinging to our little scrawny, tattered pets? Or what is offered to us is a BMW, and we cling to this. That's really the question uh, of worship, because Jesus wants you to see the massive majestic, ultimate worth of God, not because he needs it, but because you do, because you don't know what you're going to face this week. And Some of you, I, I, I know, you are facing, you're walking through unimaginable pain. Some of you are receiving news last week or this week, or you will this week, that is just absolutely devastating. Uh, some of you are going to walk through the darkest valleys and maybe it happens this week and what if the thing that you valued and treasured and worshiped the most was bigger than anything that could be taken away tomorrow that doesn't just fix your pain doesn't just like make everything pretty but it would allow you to stand. It would allow you to walk. It would allow you to be like Stephen. That's the power that worship has. And, and 
I hope you see the truth Jesus is saying here, because even if you, know, you don't know what you think about Jesus, even if you're like, I, I just don't know where I am on that, that's totally fine, but, but see this. You are going to worship, and the question is, are you going to value and worship and treasure something that can be taken from you like this tomorrow? Or are you going to be wor- worshiping God who is ultimately valuable, who can never be taken away, who will never leave you or never forsake you? That's really the question. That's the question of worship. And that's the truth that Jesus is trying to get, her, get, get to the Samaritan woman. And she's almost there, but, but there's this sense of how can I really trust he's telling the truth, right? I mean, there's your truth, there's my truth. It sounds good. Can I really trust? And so Jesus says, we don't only need truth, we actually need the Messiah. This woman's thinking, look, I've trusted a lot of men in my life, at least five, and I've gotten duped and burned every time. What in the world is supposed to make me think that I could trust you? And so she seems to be saying, you know, it'd be, it, it would be nice and all, Jesus, uh, but I'm just not, you know, sure. And so she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who call, is called the Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us all these things. So in other words, she's voicing the, uh, the objection we have to truth. And the, the whole culture, the whole like, postmodern culture deal of, uh, you know, uh, well, you, your truth and my truth, there is no such thing as, as, as truth. She's, she's voicing that out there. You know, maybe one day somebody will come sort all this out, but right now I'll be free, I'll keep my truth, and uh, you, can, you can keep yours. And I think this is where the text gets so beautiful. Who's listening to Jesus' response? It's like the, the, the story's like coming to a head. It, it, she says that, and it's like, pause, wait for it, wait for it. And then verse 26, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. It's like everything snaps for her. Why? Because now truth is not some abstraction. Truth is not a list of moral do's and don'ts. It's not a list. In fact, that's not the essence of Christianity at all. What he's saying is the essence of Christianity is that truth, absolute truth, has now become personal. Because Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm here, I am the truth. The truth is not an abstraction anymore. The truth is now actually personal. Because you see what this means for like a relationship with God. Because if, if God is only abstract, if he's just up in heaven somewhere and kind of sending down lightning bolts and saying, you know, you do this and you do that and don't do this and adjust to me and sacrifice for me. I mean, what kind of relate? that's kind of a hellish one-way relationship, right? He gets to do all that. What Jesus is saying is, that's not Christianity at all. Because he says in verse 21 and 23, you notice he says, uh, my hour is coming. The hour is here. In John, you ever studied John, the, word, that, the hour, Jesus' hour is always the cross, like 18 times in John. The hour, his hour is always the cross. And so he's saying, how can you trust me? How can you trust my truth claim against all the other you know, competing truth claims that are out there? And the answer is because of his hour, because of the cross. The cross is the place where God, the absolute truth, became a person and got on a cross. He's saying, I'm not up here throwing down abstractions at you. I limit, my, I, I limit myself. I take away my freedom so you can have freedom. The ultimate, infinite, free being in the universe was bound and nailed to a cross so that you and I could say, 
I can trust him. I can trust him with everything. That's what happens in worship. And this is really, it's liberation. This is really freedom. And that's exactly what flows out of her life. You, you see how liberating it is because worship is not just about exposing your pain, revealing what you need, but, but lastly about changing our deepest sin. Look what she does in verse 27 and 30. It all clicks and, and it says, Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. So they couldn't believe he was actually speaking to a woman in public. And no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? And so the woman left her water jar and went away into town, and she said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. Now this is incredible. This is not behavior modification, right? A little better at this, a little better at that. This is incredible, personal, real, dynamic, internal change. Why do I say that? Because this is a woman who's been hiding she won't, even, she won't even look anybody in the eye. She's out there by herself, and now suddenly she's running into town and addressing people and evangelizing people. And Come see this man, Jesus, uh, and see who he is and see what he did. And did you see? You notice what she said? She said, he told me everything I ever did. Well, he only told her, like, kind of one thing. You had five, you had five husbands, and, and, and now you're living with a sixth man. But here's what she's saying. Because I met Jesus, the thing, the deepest pain in my life, the deepest sin in my life, the deepest, most shameful thing has now become the most powerful testimony. Because I met Jesus, that which was once shame has now been transformed into testimony. And now she's out looking people in the eye and addressing them and calling them to come and... uh, Meet this man, Jesus. That's she had worshipped. She knew she was cherished by God, and therefore she had nothing to fear from man. She'd been cherished by God, she had nothing to fear from man, because Jesus' worth and his beauty had expanded so much in her heart and in her mind that her fear and her shame shrank down in comparison. So what about us? What about you? Could you imagine for a moment that the, the, the deepest, most painful thing about you that the gospel will be so true that God would take that and make it your most powerful testimony. The thing that you wouldn't share, the thing that would be hidden, the thing you would hide from, the thing you would push Jesus away from to say that that would become the most powerful testimony in your life. That is the freedom. That's the freedom that comes in worship. I mean, imagine that we had freedom like that, and imagine we took that freedom into our communities and our workplace and our neighborhoods, and people started to say, let's, we got to go see who this Jesus is, because these people are so incredibly free with who they are. And that begins to happen, I think, when we see primarily, it's not, it's not primarily about Jesus exposing our deepest pain, but the fact that Jesus has exposed himself to the world's deepest pain. He got on a cross so that you and I can now say, everything I have, my sin, my shame, my pain, has all been taken and paid for and absorbed in the great hour of the Messiah.